All right, well, if you are new here, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. And uh, before we get into the message, I have a quick uh, announcement. Uh, Many of you are aware that tonight we're hosting a class called Overcoming My Church Hurt. Um, In fact, um, I don't know probably the names of three quarters of the people who signed up. What I've also heard is there's a bunch of people planning on coming, but you haven't signed up, which is fine. But could you do me a huge favor? Um, Right after this service, we're setting up the room for the event. And uh, would you go to the hub and would you sign up for that? The website's right behind me. Um, But if you are planning on coming and you haven't signed up, um, would you do that? And uh, so if you would pray for tonight, uh, opportunity just to open up God's word and encourage people. Uh, in this kind of crazy season that we are all in together. So uh, open up your Bibles with me, and would you turn to the book of Colossians chapter 1, the book of Colossians chapter 1, and the question we're going to answer today is very simple. Is Jesus really God? Is Jesus really God? If you're joining with us today, we are in a a seven-week series. Uh, It's called Explore God, and there are just under 900 churches all throughout Chicago, um, and we are all teaching through the same big questions. These are the seven most frequently asked questions by non-Christians. They're also some of the seven most difficult questions for Christians to answer. And so one of our desires in this is whether or not you're a believer or you're not, is we want to equip you, we want to encourage you, uh, we want to resource you, uh, we want to help you have the best, most true thoughts possible. Um, If Jesus is truly God, you need to know because it changes literally everything about your life from here on out through all of eternity. So we are invested in these questions and we want to explore God together and definitely make sure we get this one absolutely correct. Now, um, there are multiple versions and ideas of who Jesus is. I want to contrast two major versions of Jesus. The first Jesus is what we're going to call pop culture Jesus. Um, Many of you are familiar with pop culture Jesus. And uh, here is kind of a brief overview of pop culture Jesus. Um, Pop culture Jesus says that Jesus was a prophet. Uh, This is kind of culture's way of saying, "Mm, probably not God, but definitely sent by God, a good man, definitely some kind of um, blessed by God man. Uh, Number two would be, Jesus was a good moral teacher. Um, Jesus had good ethics. Uh, We should probably listen to the teachings of Jesus. He was probably a good guy. After all, a lot of good in the world happened through his teaching. Number three, Jesus was only and all about love. Love, 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 love. Jesus doesn't hate anybody. Jesus doesn't get upset. Jesus is love, love, love. Number four, Jesus accepted everyone, everyone, no matter what, without exception. If you came to Jesus, no matter what, no matter what you believed, no matter what you thought, um, Jesus would accept you always. Jesus would never judge. This is important. Um, This is a, a very true concept in terms of how most people in our culture process Jesus. Jesus would never judge. Now, you might be here, and you might think to yourself, I agree with those statements. And I want to be really, really clear. Um, People who believe in pop culture Jesus are not stupid. Um, They are not, um, you fill in the blank with a negative word. 
by and large, most people believe in pop culture Jesus because this is all they have ever heard. This has been repeated to them so many times over and over and over. And there's this thought that if everybody keeps saying the same things over and over and over, it must be true. Now, Village Church, if everybody says the same things over and over and over again, does that make it true? No. And if the vast majority of a culture or civilization uh, believe in something to be true, does that make it true? And the answer, of course, is no. And so it stands, the burden is on us to discern what truth is. And so when we start talking about Jesus and eternal things, there's far too much at stake to just mindlessly buy the pop culture Jesus. I want to share um, a story that happened last month. Um, I found myself in a conversation with this incredibly kind um, woman, really just enjoyed the conversation, super sweet, uh, very honest, and um, I don't think she understood that I was a pastor. Toward the end of the conversation, she started to realize that I was a pastor, but her idea was that I was one of those guys maybe who wore a robe and just said trite little things and had no substance or depth or something of the sorts, which may be true, but I don't think it is, so you let me know later. Um, But I gathered towards the end of it, even though I thought she knew, I gathered um, towards the end of it that she didn't probably grasp this. And within one paragraph, with utter confidence, she described her Jesus, and she quoted directly three of these statements all within one paragraph. Now, at that moment, I didn't know, like, do I tell her? Like, hey, like, I study dead languages. (laughs) You know, like, hey, like, I've taught the Bible thousands of times. Like, do I put all my cards on the table? At some point, it's arrogant, and you don't want to be a jerk in those moments. I get it. Um, But I'm sitting here, so I I start to sort of challenge it, and maybe give a different perspective. And I I wrote down what she said because it was really striking. And and she didn't say this meanly. She more just said it out of a a fact and that I should probably know my place before I press further. She said, look, I've studied the Bible. I know what I'm talking about. Fair. Um, It's not exactly conducive to a mutual back-and-forth conversation, but from where she was sitting, she had studied the Bible. She knew it well. And she felt like she had a level of authority that a pastor should probably bend the knee and listen to what she had to say. And the more I heard her talk, and by the way, nothing she said was like mean-hearted, mean-spirited. When I say this one was incredibly kind, very fun to talk with. We had a really good conversation. Truly, with all sincerity, love the conversation. But as somebody who's taught the Bible for almost 20 years now, as somebody who has gone to school for this, who spends a lot of time in the Word of God, When people talk about the Bible who haven't read it, you sort of pick up on the clues. And so what I realized is that she had read people who had read about the Bible. She had read uh, books about people who didn't like the Bible. She had listened to people on the television or on radio who had general ideas and thoughts about the Bible, but had not actually opened up the Word of God to actually study the substance and the words and the concepts that come directly from the Bible. But this is not uncommon. It is not uncommon that I can meet somebody and they are assured that they have strong biblical knowledge, and yet very often they have rarely actually picked up a book of the Bible, studied it in its context. It's it's a very rare experience for most people, uh, Christians as well, unfortunately. And so I'm sitting here with this woman and I'm thinking to myself, wow, like the pop culture Jesus that you so confidently portray I just simply can't find that Jesus like that in the Bible. I mean, let's just take a moment and let's look at this. 
objectively, was Jesus a prophet? The answer is, um, yeah. The problem is that when people say this, this is their way of saying, but he's not God. He's from God, but he's not from God. Was, was Jesus a good moral teacher? If you're a Christian, the answer, of course, is going to be yes. But this is the culture pop Jesus way of saying, yeah, but he wasn't more. Uh, people will say uh, Jesus was only and all about love. Okay. Um, was Jesus primarily about love? How's that? Yeah, that feels like a good thing. Um, did Jesus experience anger? Wrath? Absolutely. So you start to like pick these apart. And I, I know it's like they're, they're getting hints of truth, but they don't get the whole thing. And we carry on. It says, Jesus accepted everyone. Meaning, and this is the context almost always, it doesn't matter what you believe, what you think, as long as you are fully, transparently, authentically you, Jesus is obliged by some metaphysical laws of the universe to accept you without condition and demand no change on you. Well, is that true? Everyone who's ever met the real Jesus, he's like, we got a lot of work. Like, you're not okay. This is going to go a different direction, okay? Now, this is the one where I'm like, all right, in all of these, there are pieces of truth. Like, Jesus accepted everyone. Um, He is willing to accept anyone on his terms, for sure, no doubt. Um, Jesus would never judge. At some point, you're like, listen, I get it, you know? So in the conversation, here's what I said. Um, I said, well... Actually, the Bible does say that Jesus judges, and so should Christians. And again, in all kindness, they said, nope, nope, Christians are never to judge. And I tried to talk, and at this point, you know when you know the conversation, like, stop now, it's not going to go well, preserve the friendship, life's going to be fine, the Lord has this, it's going to be A-OK. I said, cool, hey, let's talk about something, let's talk about something else. And, um, but the hard part is when you read the Bible, you get to, like, the end And he's literally judging every human being and casting them to hell or heaven. Like, like it or not, agree or not. I'm like, that's not, like, that just tells me you maybe got through Genesis and stopped, but you definitely didn't get to to Revelation. Like, that that didn't happen. So here's what I want to do for the sake of, I I just, for the believers in this room, I want to take some time and encourage you. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to actually fly through this, and then we have a lot to talk about to be able to answer this question. Is Jesus really God. But I want to set a foundation for the believers in this room, and I want to show you the contrast between the pop culture Jesus and what I call Bible Jesus. Because Bible Jesus and pop culture Jesus have quite a bit of contrast. Now, if you're in the room and you're a skeptic, you don't know if you believe, this is an opportunity for you to take pop culture Jesus and submit him to Bible Jesus and maybe make some shifts in your understanding of who the Bible actually claims Jesus to be. All right, Bible Jesus, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Here's what it says. He, all referencing Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is God in human flesh. He carries on. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation which is a Jewish way of saying he is the heir or the inheritor of all of creation. He gets all of it at the end of the day. goes on, verse 16, for by Jesus, all things were created. Here's the Bible's declaration of Jesus. He wasn't just a good moral teacher. He literally created matter. Everything that has substance and is real and that you can process with the five senses and that you can't, it originated and developed and was implemented and created by Jesus himself. Verse 16 goes on, by him all things were created in heaven, 
and on earth, visible and invisible. He's not just the creator of physical, visible reality. He is also the creator and the designer of spiritual, invisible reality. Uh, The Bible teaches with clarity that there is a physical realm that Jesus spoke into existence. There is also a spiritual realm with angels and demons and spirit, etc., that Jesus also designed and implemented, created and organized, if you will. It says this, that he also created thrones, or dominions, which means Jesus ordains kings and nations in the physical realm. It carries on, it says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, Jesus chooses princes and leaders in the angelic and the demonic realm. I mean, like, this isn't vibing very well with pop culture Jesus, is it? Like, the two feel very different. Well, the Apostle Paul is definitely not done. He carries on and says, all things whether they're physical or spiritual, visible or invisible, were created through Jesus. He is the instrument of creation and for Jesus, meaning Jesus made everything, every piece of matter, everything in existence for himself and for his pleasure. Verse 17 carries on. Jesus is before all things. Jesus himself predates matter. Before there was something, Jesus predated that. And in Jesus, all things hold together. Somehow, Jesus is the power that holds together the physical and the spiritual universe. Without Jesus, it all flies apart and goes away. Paul's not done. Verse 18, Jesus is the head of the body the church. Jesus uniquely and distinctly loves the global historical church and also local churches, and he leads them. Jesus is the, fir- he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Jesus was killed historically, physically, bodily, executed on a cross, and then physically, bodily, historically, at a certain point in time and space, resurrected by God the Father from the dead. Verse 19, or verse 18, um, that in everything, why did this happen? He might be preeminent. That he would be the most important person in all of creation and history. Verse 19, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was not part God, but fully God. And finally, the last one, I mean, literally, this just goes on, but we'll stop here. In verse 20, and through Jesus... To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus wants reconciliation with humanity. Hear me on his terms. So once and for all, I'd like to put to death pop culture Jesus, at least for the people in this room. Because the two Jesuses aren't compatible. There can only actually be one Jesus. Now let's take a step back for a moment. If I am skeptical of Christianity which many of you are, many of you have been, here's my concern. I might say something like this to you. I might say, okay, Michael, that's all good and well, but the Apostle Paul wrote these things decades after the physical Jesus was alive and apparently resurrected and ascended. So I also have a problem because when I open up the Gospels, which are supposed to be accounts 
of the actual life of the human Jesus before he was resurrected, right? These two Jesuses feel really incompatible. Um, the, the Jesus in the, God, the, the Gospels, is he's really normal. He's, he's, he's a dude who eats and drinks and walks and lives like everybody else. The Jesus you're describing to me in Colossians 1 is glorified and, and unbelievably out there. It, it just, I have a hard time putting the two Jesuses together. And so historically what you're going to find in Christian apologetics or a defense of the faith is that there are things that Christians will say to non-Christians to try to help them and, and maybe even convince them that Jesus is unique. And so um, I'll share with you five things that I think most Christians are tempted to say. Uh, these are things that Jesus in the Bible does or claims to do that really only God could do. So number one, here's, here's the first one. Jesus claimed to be God which is true in the Bible, correct? Like when you read the Gospels, he was very clear. He believed he was divinity. He claimed to forgive sins. He claimed he spoke directly and regularly with the Father. He performed miracles. He was resurrected. So um, I would say uh, typical methods of trying to prove Jesus's divinity is maybe to open up the Bible and say, look at what the Bible says about him. If I'm a skeptic, here's how I'm responding to this. Um, so Jesus claimed to be God. I could claim to be a monkey, like like, how do we know? Okay, Jesus claimed to forgive sins. How do you know? Like, can you prove this? Okay, good point. Claimed he spoke directly and regularly with the Father. Okay, well, first of all, how can you prove that? And second of all, I think he might be crazy. Third of all, or fourth, he performed miracles. And at this point, this is where I think the thinking skeptic could actually propose a challenge back to the Christian. All right, Christian, let me work within your own worldview. Let's assume that the Bible is true. Um, I see places in the Bible where demons do miracles or the evil one is responsible for miraculous things. So based on these first four alone, why should I not think, given your worldview, that Jesus is just a really tricky, deceptive demon with unusual power? It's a fair point, isn't it? It's interesting because when you get to the resurrection, here's, here's what you're never going to find anywhere in the Bible. You're not going to find demons or darkness raising people from the dead. It's, it's the one power, the one quality, the one attribute that is reserved for divinity. Let's walk away from the Bible for a moment. Do any of you or any human have the ability or power to raise somebody from the dead? Please say no. No. That is a power reserved for divinity. That is a power reserved for something far bigger, far more powerful than any of us in this room. If Jesus was truly raised from the dead, and if we could prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt, or with unusual certainty, that there was a dead guy named Jesus of Nazareth, objectively historically dead, and that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead, here's what I think. That is something only God could do. And here's my question. What was it about this Jesus of Nazareth that God would raise him from the dead? And this is where I would tell anybody who's a skeptic, I want you to hear me, you don't have to agree with anything we're saying right now. But if there's one challenge that I would give you, the real logical skeptic who wants to know truth, not suppress it, who really wants to know truth, here's my challenge for you. Study relentlessly the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Study that. Dig deep into it. Let the evidence lead you to wherever the evidence necessarily leads you. Here's what I think you will find in your heart. 
you will be resistant to it because you are probably somewhere deep down inside afraid of what might happen because you've heard stories of other men and women, scientists and otherwise, who've walked this journey and it took them to a place they never, ever expected. And so here's my my actual challenge for you. It is, if you really, really want to know whether or not Jesus is God, there is one place that I would tell you, you go down this rabbit hole, and I can't guarantee you what's going to happen on the other side, but I can say this, it will probably wreck your worldview, it will destroy your notions of pop culture Jesus, and it will change your life. There's a general principle here that I, I need you to understand, and I don't think it's just biblical, I also think it is logical. That only God, if there is a God of this universe, only God has the keys of death. That's it. No human and no mortal can take a dead person whose consciousness has gone, re-inject that consciousness, and then bring them back to life after death. It's just not possible. It will require divinity. And I think that's a baseline that we can start with, with any skeptic or any believer, and say, would you agree? that if a dead man raised from the dead, it would require divine intervention. And I have found for most people that that is, an agree, that, that is a statement that they can agree on. And here's what I'll just tell you. All of Christianity hinges on the resurrection. All of it. I cannot prove to you that Jesus is God with any kind of evidence in any way, shape, or form except through the resurrection. One of the things I love about the resurrection is that it is unusually verifiable. And we're going to get there. Turn with me, Acts chapter 17. Uh, last week we finished here, and I want to, want to pick this up. I'm going to take some time and go deeper. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. We'll have it on the screen, but open up your word. Here's what Paul's doing. Paul is proclaiming the gospel to a bunch of people who have never heard of Jesus. They have no pop culture Jesus. It's a new name for many of them. It's a new concept new categories. Everything Paul says about Jesus, it's the first time they're actually hearing him. There's this place in Athens called the Areopagus, which is a place where Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and more would come together and share new ideas. And it's Paul's turn, and he's talking to them about Christianity. And this is how he culminates his statement to them. Verse 30, the times of ignorance, not stupidity, by the way, ignorance, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, he, he doesn't just suggest, imagine sitting with a bunch of people who have never heard of Jesus before, okay? He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Now, if you are the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, at this moment, you're like, who's the man? And what kind of man must be so unique to God that God would pluck out this one singular man and give this man the authority to judge everybody who's ever lived? So if I'm a a philosopher, I want to know what this is. And then my next question would be, how, how could you even prove that? Like, how, how can we know that God himself validates and appointed a man who will be the judge of all things? Here's what he says. And of this, he, God, has given assurance to all, to everybody. How? By raising him from the dead. 
Now, here's my question. How could the Apostle Paul walk into this space where most of the people have no categories of Jesus, preach the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and then expect, this is funny if you think about it, that people who have never heard of Jesus before are just going to believe. I'm going to give you two reasons. I'm going to give you two reasons why Paul believes he could make a claim about the resurrected Jesus and people would actually believe. Here's the first reason. The message of Jesus' death and resurrection is infused with divine power. If there are some of you who are younger in the faith, um, I need you to pay very careful attention to what I'm about to tell you. This next section could be one of the most powerful tools that I give you to be an effective and fruitful Christian in evangelism for the rest of your life. So I need you to pay very careful attention. The gospel story, the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this story that sounds so stupid to so many people that God himself has ordained that when this story is told and understood, it is infused with the power to save. It's like you have a a grenade in your hand and that your job is to put the grenade in other people's hand. You can't control when God pulls the pin, but at the right time when this grenade is ready, that it will explode and people will begin to believe and understand who Jesus is. That the gospel message, this story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is infused with divine power to the point that if somebody does not hear the message, they cannot believe. Uh, Romans 1.16, here's what it says. That I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would you not be ashamed of the gospel? It's an incredibly stupid, foolish message to everybody who hears it. But here's Paul's experience. When Paul goes into cities that have never heard the name of Jesus before, and he tells them the story of the life, death, and resurrection, here's what happens. Very intelligent, very smart, very skeptical people. They don't know why, but they're there, and they're like, I believe in this Jesus. I've never met him, seen him, but I have an unshakable belief, and I have to trust in him. Um, I guess I should be baptized. That's what you say. And you're like, Otherwise, really intelligent people are given the grenade of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when the the Lord pulls the the plug on it, this thing blows up, and they believe. Can I just tell you how many times I've watched this happen? We'll be preaching. We're in a conversation. Um, Otherwise, skeptical people who have staked so much of their knowledge and reputation that they are not a Christian. I'm a skeptic. I'm an agnostic. I'm an atheist. And they're sitting in a church service or they're talking to somebody and the gospel is shared and they've heard it a thousand times. And then for some reason, they're sitting in church and they're like, I don't know why I believe this, but I believe this. I can't tell anybody this. I've already put all my stock that I don't believe this, but oh no, I do believe this. What do I do? I need to get out of this service as soon as it's over and I can't talk to a human being. Okay? What just happened? The grenade of the gospel at the right time and the right moment blew up and they had eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. Here's what he says. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. No gospel, no power. No gospel, no salvation. 
and that somehow God has taken this crazy, ridiculous, offensive message, and he's infused it with divine power, and until you put it in somebody else's hands, they have no capacity or opportunity to save them. And then here's what we want to do. We want to, like, pull the, the, the trigger out. You know, what do you call it? The pin. We want to pull the pin ourselves. You can't. You cannot force anybody to believe. This is why salvation is all of God. You give them the gospel. God pulls the pin. He blows it up when he wants. So we get to the next passage in Romans chapter 10. And he says this, how then will they call on him who they haven't believed? You you just can't do it. And then he says, and how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? Let me tell you one of the most saddest pathetic, heartbreaking stats I've ever read, probably in the last 10 years. Half of millennial evangelicals now believe it is immoral to share the gospel with a non-Christian. What? The devil has tricked you and taken your power away from you. You cannot control when someone believes. But if you will not give them a simple, pure, true gospel, you take from them the ability to believe. And so we give it can't convince anybody. I will share the gospel with anybody. I have no pressure on my heart and my soul to make them to believe. The Lord pulls the pin whenever he wants. But I'm telling you, that is a lie. And you don't have to be a jerk when you share the gospel. I don't know if you know that. If you're a jerk when you share the gospel, it's because you're a jerk. It's not because the gospel's bad. (laughs) So this is one of these things that I just want to look at every young person and say, never underestimate the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because it is infused with unbelievable power. Now, if you are not a Christian, you are probably hearing me say this and say, you're thinking, that is dumb. I am impervious to the power of the gospel. I have heard it time and time and time again. And you may stand up for the next 40 years of your life resisting the power of the gospel. Hear me. When the Lord pulls the pin and you believe, you cannot unbelieve. And when the Lord pulls the pin, it will violate all of your common sense and logic. How could a stupid message of a dead God, fairy tale God, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, coming back to judge the living and the dead, how could something so foolish and so stupid have such power that me, skeptical, logical, sane, clear-headed, agnostic, always using my brain, I need evidence all the time, how is it humanly possible that I believe? And so I'll just I'll say this to you as a... Friend, I have no ability to make you believe, but watch out. When you do believe one day, go back to this moment. And remember, this is God pulling the pin on the grenade of the gospel so that you would believe. And he is calling you to himself. Trust in Jesus Christ. When that day happens, and when you wake up one day, and you don't know why you believe, walk toward him, because it will be one of the greatest gifts you've ever received in your life. Now, What can make the Apostle Paul so comfortable proclaiming the gospel to people who have never heard the name of Jesus? He has watched in city after city after city. He walks in and he shares the stupid message of Jesus that is illogical to every Greek. It's illogical to every Jew. It's a violation even of Jewish philosophical and theological logic. And he watches their hearts melt because of this gospel that is so foolish. It is infused with power. There's a second reason, though. The second reason that Paul can do this with such confidence is because the reality of the resurrection is able to be validated with confidence. So uh, some of you are going to want me to go much deeper. This message would have to be three to eight hours for me to go deeper. And I'm told that you have a two-hour sermon limit. So I'm just going to keep it under that. Um, We're going to be fine. But 
here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to kind of hover. Um, and I'm going to start, I'm going to like dip our feet in the water on a handful of really significant points. Your job, if you are a skeptic, if you are logical, your job, I think, I would say moral obligation given the weight of the claims of Jesus is to press into the subject and study the resurrection to find not just pop culture defenses of why it's dumb, but to find the greatest minds, the best thinkers, and to find them and face their ideas head on and try to disprove the resurrection of Jesus with certainty. That is your, that is your I would say, moral obligation for the logical, sane, skeptical person. So here's what I want to do. I want to share with you just eight facts that you have to take into consideration as you look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number one, look at the effectiveness of the, of the Roman execution process. Why do I say this? Because if the Romans stunk at killing people, you would have no certainty that Jesus of Nazareth was actually murdered. Uh, let me just encourage you with this. They were professional killers. There were checks and balances so that if one should not do his job, the job was certainly considered to be done by all of the people around. The idea that a Roman soldier would not finish execution is crazy. I'm going to tell you why. Because if they didn't do their job, they would most certainly be killed. So every time you're committing an execution, you are vividly reminded of your fate should you fail. And all I know is if there's that much on the line and there are that many checks and balances that somehow the, resurre- the, the, the execution of Jesus is a high probability and there is nobody with any evidence in any way, shape, or form that can bring forth even a, a little bit of an idea of evidence that somehow the, the, the Romans messed this up. They were professional killers. That's, that, is, that is baseline, that is foundational. We're going to keep building. Number two, uh, look at the evidence of Rome's crucifixion of a historical man named Jesus of Nazareth. This is not just in the Bible, but in secular and Jewish historical resources. The presence, the existence of a man named Jesus of Nazareth who was killed on a cross in early first century by Rome, okay? That is a historically validated reality. Every once in a while, and you just got to be careful of this, there are these very fringe scholars who, by the way, are not respected by almost anybody in academia, really, who come up with very fringe concepts because sometimes in the sciences, the best way to make a name for yourself is to say something crazy and try to prove it to be true. And there will always be people on the extreme fringes of science and history and archaeology, etc. But the vast majority of secular, atheistic, even agnostic scientists and historians will tell you this. There was a historical man named Jesus of Nazareth who was executed by crucifixion by Rome. Number three, you have to look at the discovery of an empty tomb. This concept of the empty empty tomb is reported historically in no less than six independent sources, secular, Jewish, and Christian. By the way, some of you have this notion that we are not allowed to use the New Testament or the Old Testament as a historically reliable source. Um, Even the best secular historians understand the reliability and the trustworthiness of much of the history in the Old and New Testament. Just because people may not believe the truth claims about God, um, its historical references and places and spaces and times are notoriously proven to be accurate over and over and over again. Even if you're not a Christian, you have to, and I mean have to, 
honor and respect the Old Testament and the New Testament as legitimate historical documents that are reflecting real places, times, kings, nations, experiences from the perspective of authors who believe they were telling the truth. Like that's, that's just an undeniable thing. So even though secular historians don't acknowledge, they believe what the authors of what much of the New Testament said, the greatest historians and the greatest scholars are going to at least acknowledge that they're really great documents that capture moments in history that are reliable. And so we can't say uh, six, different extra, or six different sources are all pointing to an empty tomb and acknowledging it as reality. Now the why, we're going to get into that in a little bit. But we at least have to acknowledge Jewish, Roman, and Christian scholar or historians wrote about in the first century an empty tomb, and that seems to be a very real experience. Now, there's a million reasons for it. Now, the next two um, um, realities I want you to look at, for me, these are the deal breakers. I put these two together, forget about everything else I've said, forget about everything I will say. I, I have a very hard time with the next two things that I'm about to tell you and not believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number four, look at the mother of Jesus. Okay, raise your hand if you have a kid. Raise your hand if you are a kid, (laughs) right? Let me tell you what I know about children. They are evil, wicked little sinners, (laughs) right? How many of you, you're like, I never had to teach my kid how to do good because they were born good. All people are basically good. I'm sorry. I spent all my time restraining evil and teaching good. It's like good isn't intuitive for them. Why? Well, the Bible gives us a reason. So again, another pop culture notion about the nature of humanity. People are basically good. I'm sorry, but like people are not basically good. We can disagree on that until we're blue in the face. But here's what I don't think you can disagree on. Kids are sinners. Kids aren't basically, basically good. There is no amount of money that you could plausibly give me to convince me that my son is God. <laughs> that my son spoke and matter existed. That my son, with all intentionality, created my brain and decided the color of my eyes and my hair and the texture of my hair and the place of my living. And no plausible way. And anything, I know, right? Smite you, baldy. Uh-uh. <laughs> I do have questions for Jesus about that. I'm like, come on. I've got three older brothers, like what, six four, six three, six one, full head of hair, full head of hair, bald, bald. And I'm like, I'm five eight and three quarters. How did that happen? Okay. My aunts are taller than I am. All right. I know. Seriously, it's true. Five eleven, six foot. Anyways. If you saw my family, you're like, mm, mailman? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Carry on, Michael. Carry on. My point in this, my mother would never worship me as God. She raised me. She wiped my butt. She knows everything about me. She knows, she knows that I'm a sinner. What plausibly could have happened to give Mary the firm conviction that her son is the creator of the universe? I could see Mary, like, Pop culture Jesus, good moral teacher, prophet, etc., whatever. Put that away. We already know that. That's not even real. What could possibly have happened to Mary that she would believe that her son is God? Let's amp this up. Number five. The brothers of Jesus went willingly 
to their death for their conviction that their brother was God in the flesh and resurrected. Okay, I got three older brothers. Let's just be straight. No way, no way, no way. Sinner, sinner, sinner. I'm the best of the four, right? And I'm not even God. (laughs) They're not here, so I can say whatever I want. There's no way. What on God's green earth happened to these brothers? They grew up with them. They fought with them. They had all the experiences that brothers have with brothers. And anybody who has a sibling, you know this, that somehow something catastrophic must have happened. And when they encountered the resurrected Jesus, they did not have to somehow rewrite all the past about Jesus' life. Well, he sinned here and he sinned there. Whatever happened with the resurrection, they were able to look back and say, that makes sense and is consistent with what we've known about him growing up with him. And then the mother says, yeah, I see it too. That's crazy. I'm just telling you that this does, the only explanation for this, that his family would do that, would be if they made a ton of money, but they didn't. Maybe there was some secret ploy. None of it played out. And they went to the death. Now, here's the next one. I think this is one that you just have to look at. Look at the lives and deaths of the disciples. If this was some kind of coup, then why did they all leave everything that was good and and known to them? They traveled all over the world in all different directions with the firm conviction that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead and this gospel message needed to be told to people who had never, ever heard it. And they were so firmly convinced of it that when they gave this gospel message to people who had never heard of it, that it was infused with some kind of power that people would just believe. And they did. And it spread like wildfire, not because people were stupid, but because of the power of God. And then these men, for a hoax, would allow themselves to be beheaded? They would allow their guts to be cut open and spilled all over the ground? Are you kidding me? They would allow themselves to be dragged, murdered, tortured, their friends, their family, and they sat back for a hoax? For a guy who, if he wasn't risen, was already dead? It literally just makes no sense like, man, i got to come up with a new Easter message. What are we going to talk about? My goodness. Number seven, look at the growing number of converted scholars who studied the evidence and believed. It's really interesting. You just hear about new ones all the time. Skeptical, I would never. I'm going to finally disprove this. All my buddies are coming to Christ. So I'm going to make sure they know they're wrong. I'm going to give them evidence. And then, lo and behold, <laughs> they get to the end of the evidence, and they're like, huh, didn't see that coming. Probably should write a book on this because other people need to know that the evidence all leads in the same direction. Finally, consider how illogical, and I mean inane, all the explanations are for the plausibility of an empty tomb. Uh, I'll just give you a handful. There's the conspiracy hypothesis that the disciples of Jesus conspired to trick everybody. Well, why would you, for a conspiracy, die? Be tortured. Run for your life. Why would you do that? What did they gain? They didn't know how it would all pan out. They didn't know that they would be immortalized in books. That wasn't their plan. Like, you can't script that. Like, that happened by the power of God. The apparent death hypothesis, Jesus appeared to die, but the professional executioner was unsuccessful and all their checks and balances. They all failed. Jesus came off the cross, a bloodied mess, and somehow tricked everybody. 
Like, no rational, sane scholar actually believes that. In fact, what most scholars will tell you is like, nope, they killed him, he was dead. Their issue is not whether or not it was a false death. Their issue is, no, the resurrection didn't happen because we don't believe in the supernatural. The hallucination hypothesis that all the disciples hallucinated a resurrected Jesus, just for what it's worth. If a bunch of you did hallucinogenic drugs, you all wouldn't see the same thing. Logically, let's just put that together. Okay, good. Uh, Number four. The displaced body hypothesis. The body got misplaced. Whoops, we lost it. How do you lose a dead body? A, they're big, they're heavy, and they smell. There's no way. The stolen body hypothesis. Thieves stole it. Here's the problem. Why is it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people said, no, we met him after the crucifixion? Nope, saw him, know him, knew him before, knew him after, we saw him. That's a lot of people to be lying. The wrong guy hypothesis. Ah, they killed the wrong guy on the cross. You think Mary and the disciples were like, oh, it's the wrong guy. I mean, if so, it is one of the greatest hoaxes ever, but nobody actually believes that. And all of these have been almost universally rejected by the most reputable scholars, Christian and otherwise. Peter, Peter Slezak, he said this. I love this quote. He says, for a God who is able to create the entire universe, the odd resurrection would be child's play. Let me tell you actually for most people what lies behind their reticence to believe in a supernatural resurrection. Let's just be very straight. The vast majority of people are not atheists. They're agnostic. They, their gut, deep down inside, they know that this kind of order and beauty and magnitude does not happen by accident. They know there's a sovereign creator who somehow intervened in this crazy. Most honest, intellectually straightforward people are going to tell you, no, evolution is actually impossible without some kind of intervention, okay? Uh, even, even the secular uh, agnostics, that's what they're going to say. So there's something deep down inside of you. Let me, just, let me just say this. If there is any cosmic force that created this universe, you may not know his name or otherwise, if that is possible, resurrection is like absolutely on the table, you, you don't get to be an agnostic and acknowledge even maybe that there is a powerful God and then take this off the table. If there is a God, whether or not his name is Jesus or not, if there is a God who can take all of the crazy of space matter flying at unbelievable speeds, bring order out of it, and then bring life to this planet, if something can do that, can he not raise a man from the dead? And the answer, of course, is absolutely. For most people... You're hesitant to believe in the miraculous because I think you believe and understand in the core of your being, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, it changes everything. It changes why you think you're here. It changes what you do. It changes how you live. It changes what you can and should not do. It changes the purpose of your life. It changes the person you're dating. It changes the way you think about your work. It changes the way you think about play and money and everything else in your life. And now the new question is, not what do I want to do with this or that? It is, Jesus, what do you want to do? And you give leadership and authority and lordship to someone else other than yourself. Let me just call on the table. The vast majority of people who are logical and sane will not walk down the path of studying the resurrection because they know what's going to happen if they get to the end and there is a resurrected Jesus. What I would say is if you really are logical and sane, rise above that foolishness. Go wherever the evidence leads, and if you meet a resurrected Jesus, deal with him then. Uh, C.S. Lewis came up with, I, th- thought, I think, a really helpful paradigm of how to look at Jesus. I'm going to tweak it just a little bit. 
we know there can only be one Jesus, so we have some options. The first option is that Jesus was a liar. If Jesus is a liar, pop culture Jesus disintegrates for sure. Uh, If he's a liar, he can't be trusted. I just have a hard time thinking that the brothers and mother of Jesus went to the trouble they went through because their son, their dead son, was a liar. Most people don't believe this because it kind of just is a little bit out there. A better option is that Jesus was a lunatic. But then again, if your brother was a lunatic, wouldn't you know? Like, moms, if your kid was, like, crazy, wouldn't you know? For sure. Dads, like, you're aware. Would you worship them as God? Not at all. Like, he couldn't have gotten past some of these initial things. There's a fourth one that I think is even more viable, and this is the idea that Jesus is a cult leader. Very charismatic, very influential, somehow just duped all of these people. Uh, Maybe, but to the point of of death? And we're not just talking about Kool-Aid in Texas. We're talking about we're all going to leave, we're going to go different directions, and we're going to devote our lives and be tortured and murdered and executed for a firm conviction that this Jesus was dead and now he's alive. This is a different level of cult leader that human history, I don't think, has really, really ever seen before. The fourth option, and I I think the evidence just lands us to this place where you say, there really is no other option that God the Father raised him from the dead when you look at the empty tomb, and therefore, God the Father said that this is Lord and God of the universe. That the Bible Jesus actually is the real Jesus, and the pop culture Jesus is not. Uh, there's a, a, a preacher, and uh, he shared a, a true story, and here's what he said. A Muslim in Africa became a Christian, and some of his friends asked him, why have you done such a thing? And he answered, well, it's like this. Suppose you're going down the road, and suddenly the road forked in two directions. You didn't know which way to go. And there at the fork were two men, one dead, and one alive. Which one would you ask to show you the way? If there's a resurrected Jesus, I'm going to listen. And, and, and here's my, my just sheer desire. I don't believe I can make you believe. I do believe that I can posit a really good argument that propels you down a pathway to study the historical actual evidence of the resurrection. And at that moment, you are faced with a decision. All but four of the world's major religions are based on philosophical ideas, not substantive things. Uh, The four religions that actually have an actual person that you can point to that are making truth claims about reality. Uh, In 1900 BC, Judaism's father Abraham, dead or alive, by the way? Dead. 483, Buddha, dead or alive? Dead. June 6, 632 AD, Muhammad, dead or alive? Dead. Ish, 33 AD, Jesus died, but apparently came back to life and appeared to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. The only religion in the world that claims a divine validation through resurrection. I want to close with this. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
This is where the evidence points. I don't believe again that this sermon, for most of you who are skeptical, you're going to run up here and say, I'm all in. I do believe that I would be willing to walk down any journey with you, that we at this church would be willing to answer any questions and process with you, because there's way too much at stake to ignore, A, the evidence and the implications. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus, first of all. Thank you for giving us your son who objectively, historically, died on a cross. And thank you that the evidence is overwhelmingly clear and consistent with historical reality that you raised him from the dead. And the implications of that one reality are staggering. That we can trust the claims of Jesus about himself. That when Paul met the resurrected Jesus and he documented to the Colossian church about the nature and character of the glorified Jesus, that we can trust these accounts. And so, Jesus, thank you for being the king of the universe. Jesus, I thank you that you have had no identity crisis as people have doubted you, but you still pursue and you still pull the pin on the hand grenade of the gospel and people still come to know and believe. Lord, for everyone in this room who is still skeptical and, and uh, struggling and, and want to know the truth, I just simply pray that if you are real, you would show them Jesus. You would show them a resurrected, real, historical, true Jesus, fully God, fully man who went to the cross for their sins. So Lord, as we come to this communion table, God, I pray you would just well up our hearts with sincere awe and gratitude that you would go through all of this for us whom you love. We thank you, we love you, we remember and we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, communion draws us back to the cross. This is the source of our salvation. And without the resurrection, Jesus is nothing more than bones or dust in the ground somewhere in the Middle East. But with the resurrection, there is a claim that this event of the crucifixion has substance and meaning that is deeply personal. Without the resurrection, he is another dead criminal by Rome. But with the resurrection, the shed blood of Christ on the cross, the Father has declared to all of us that it has the power to forgive sins, just as the word of God says. And so maybe you're here and you've never, ever trusted in Jesus. And some of you might be here and you hate it. All your pride is just being killed right now. And you're like, oh, why do I believe? I don't want to be that guy. We're all that guy. Every one of us in, the, in this room who believes, we, at one time, we're like, huh, I believe, crazy. And so you're in good company if that's, if that's who you are. And if today you believe in Jesus Christ and, and, and God has given you the ability to see and to hear and to believe, I just want to encourage you. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to answer any of your questions. And so would you just come talk to us, myself, anyone upstage over, over at the right at the service um, where we pray for people. Um, just come talk to us. We'd love to encourage you. Uh, some of you are here, and communion is a little bit strange for you because you don't know whether or not you should take it. Churches can be weird. And, and so here's what we tell people. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to partake of communion with us. We are one body in Jesus. Uh, if you're here and you have never trusted and you don't know what to do, our ask is very simple. When the elements pass by you, um, would you just let them pass by and don't partake? Because to partake is to make a personal declaration that you believe in a resurrected Jesus who died on the cross for your sins 
You believe in that. And if you're not ready to do that yet, there's just no pressure whatsoever. Nobody will look down on you or judge. So here's what we'll do. We're going to have a, a minute of silence, just an opportunity to reflect, quiet our hearts, talk to God. We're going to sing together while the elements are being passed out. And if you'd hold on to the elements, um, at the end of the song, I'll come back up and we'll pray, and we will take them together as a sign of our unity in Jesus Christ. So let's have a moment of just silence to talk to God.